Welcome to episode 109 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever discussing our passion for Linux. I am Ryan, and with me today are three podcasting phenoms. Noah, how are you this week, sir? I'm doing great, Ryan. And Michael? I'm doing fantastic. And we could go ahead and skip Zeb. No, I'm kidding. How are you doing, sir? Yeah, I'm doing very well, thank you. Hope you're well, too. I'm doing great. What have you been up to this week? Well, I've been um, watching a good friend of mine, and probably everybody on the stream knows him, uh, English Bob. Yes. Um, struggle with a conundrum of going, oh, Windows, Linux, Windows, Linux, what do I use? Because um, apparently he's discovered a program, and I don't know how long it's been out there, called Reshader. Um, that according to English Bob gives him much better graphics in his games when he's on Windows 7. Now, I, ca I can't see it when he's streaming that via YouTube. So I was thought it, I thought I'd give it a go, being as I'm a disgusting dual booter. Um, and I will continue, although I will continue to game on Peppermint, I can't see the difference. But tomorrow morning, I'm going to stream from Windows. Gross. This reshader installed. And uh, we'll see if the subscribers can, can see the difference. Now, um, I like EB a lot, and I like you a lot, Zeb. But uh, you used I, to. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it's a past tense at this point. If you're going to sit there, well, when you say, first of all, let me make sure we're clear about English Bob, because English Bob, I've given this man money. That's how much I like this man. And I want to make sure he's not, when you're talking just gaming in Windows, right? He's not like thinking I'm going to stay in Windows and not come back to Linux. That's exactly what he's thinking. Wow. Which one? Wait, well, which one? I'm confused now. No, he, he's, he's, he was seriously considering leaving Linux because it's, he said there's too much that he has to keep messing around to get the games that he wants to play. Now, we all know English Bob, and this is, for me, this is just a fad. A fad. And we know he will go back to Peppermint. But at the moment, he's got a bee in his bonnet because he wants to play multi-trucking um, online. And you can only do that really easily with Windows because they keep changing the um, Euro trucks. And every time they upgrade it, multiplayer breaks. And you have to go back and learn how to get it all up and running again. But no, he is seriously considering just gaming on Windows because that's what his streams are all about. And But that's just this week. Well, it sounds like a midlife crisis, and my advice to him is to get a Corvette and stick in Linux. That that would be the best <laughs> advice I can tell him. Well, then you'd be using the best in all in all realms, right? You'd have the best car, you'd have the best operating system. Exactly. That's what you need to do. So, Noah, what have you been up to this week, sir? I'm actually currently in the middle of a uh, home automation project, actually. So, uh, my house is, um, it's got a lot of square feet, and so what they the way that the heating and cooling system works it's divided into zones and each zone can um can be independently controlled and when we bought the house it was on these analog thermostats that had no linux and, and didn't do anything cool so i decided it was time to change that and so what we've done is we're going to this it's not a cloud system uh the the thermostats i've got one here they're made by they're made by honeywell and um but it is a networked thermostat. And so the way this works is this actually communicates 950 megahertz back to a base station, which is over here. And uh, there's, a, there's an internet base station that it connects to. And then this thing connect, it plugs into the network and then has the ability uh, to interface with the rest of my home automation equipment. And so all of, the, all of our light switches 
which I can actually show because I'm in my house today. All of our light switches, which that's not the light switch, right? Over there. If you can see yeah. light or right there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we so, got it. That that the, there's the little buttons that go up and down, and there's there's four or five of them. And what those do is allow for different what they call scene settings. And so I can say I'm at home, or it's at night, or I'm going to bed, or whatever it is. And those scene settings then will change various different uh, things in the house. And one of that is going to be uh, the honey, the, this Honeywell thermostat. And where the Linux tie-in is, uh, we're actually going to look at something like OpenHab to tie all of that stuff together because at the moment the Honeywell system won't talk directly to the, the those wall control panels but there is modules for a bunch of different open source home automation controllers and so I bought a new box which is new server that is sitting right well that I can show too there's a, a new Dell server that is sitting right there nice. and, uh, and I've got all the Honeywell stuff and so the uh, the HVAC guys are actually at this very moment working on getting new wire and they're actually replacing a blower motor and, and getting all that stuff done. And then uh, actually during Destination Linux, we're going to install these thermostats and, uh, and, and, and try to get the system online. That's awesome. So does that use Z-Wave by any chance? The no, Honeywell? It, it, it can communicate through Z-Wave through, uh, through this thing. This thing can talk Z-Wave, um, but they have their own proprietary dirty format that this thing talks to this thing. And then once it gets to this thing, then this actually plugs into the network, and then there's all sorts of different ways you can control. One of which being Z-Wave. Um, nice. I'm not going to do that. There's actually a direct TCP uh, control that you can tie into OpenHab, which is what I'm going to try to use. So I will know by the end of this episode if it works or not, though. Very cool. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So, Michael, that's, what that's has been up with you, sir? Uh, been a lot of things recently, and um, I found this new. Um, the service kind of service that's a competitor to meetup. So if you ever heard of meetup.com, it's very popular for a variety of different types of groups, but heavily is the Linux user groups uh, where we'll meet, use meetup.com to f facilitate uh, organizing uh, events and everything. And that's actually kind of negative to a lot of groups because there's like $15 a month in order to have a meetup group and on meetup.com. There's this new service called gettogether.community. And it is completely free. It's also open source. You can use it directly on their hosted version, or you can use it as a self-hosted version if you want to. Um, so, and it also allows for federation, so you can self-host while still connecting to their com their community site. And I set up a uh, community uh, get together community for the previous lug that I'm or the current lug that I'm actually a part of. Where so now there's we're testing both the meetup.com comparable to this new service. And this new service has a lot of cool benefits and features. One of the things I really like is the fact that it has uh, the ability to use your ad presentations and talks per event. So you wow. can actually have people sign up and request to be do a talk and you can verify whether you, you, you uh, like that talk or whatever. And it also will be able to upload like presentation slides and everything to the event when it's done. So it's a very cool idea. And uh, I, I mean, if anybody wants to talk, look it up, feel free to do so. I think it's worth doing. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It is optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integration firewalls, load balancers, and more. You get all of this plus access to world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. That's darn near free. 
DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, and they are awesome. They are one of my favorite resources to get information out there, so definitely utilize those and check them out, and they have languages and frameworks out there as well. So get started with DigitalOcean for two months free with $100 credit by going to do.co slash dl. You can use that $100 credit to try out a bunch of their smart droplets or some beefy droplets. If you want, you can even have a test run with a beefy 16 gigabytes of RAM, six times CPU droplet that has six terabytes per second of transfer. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with $100 credit by going to do.co slash DL. Make sure you put that DL in there so they know you came from Destination Linux. And just to follow up on what Ryan said there about those 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials, you you guys all know that I'm not the most technical person out there. But even I was able to go on there, have a look, watch their tutorials, and begin to start to start to understand what it is, the types of services they're offering. So they are really well put together. And if you're an expert, you can just skim through them and get what you want. But if you're a beginner, they are really great in getting you sorted out. It's fantastic. Before we get into the email, I just want to give a special thanks to everybody who's supporting the GoFundMe page to bring Zeb to America. So far, you have raised $821 of the $2,000 goal, and that's just absolutely ridiculously awesome. Thank you all so much. You have no idea how amazing it's going to be to have all of us together for the first time and be able to do the podcast, to do the Ask Noah show, to do all of this as one group. And, you know, Noah, me and Michael have been able to hang out at least once before. Um, and, and now we'll have the whole crew together and it's just going to be so much fun. And we're going to do live streams for the event. We're going to make sure that you guys get plenty of opportunity to see Zeb, check Michael in person. And I know that's what you want <laughs> to spend your money for. So we're going to make sure that happens on a regular basis. Or Zeb's going to try to check me on his uh, love for Team Green. Uh, but he's going to realize just how intimidatingly tall I am. Right, Zeb? No. <laughs> all right. Well, in any case, thank you all very much. If you want to go out there and support the show, Michael, what is the link they can go to? DestinationLinux.org slash zeb to self Z-E-B-T-O-S-E-L-F. All right. So now we are going to get into the email of the week. I love hearing from our listeners. Michael, what do we have to this week? Well, this week we have an email from Charlie, and Charlie writes, I was a longtime user of Linux, but a few years ago was tempted to into the walled garden of the forbidden fruit of macOS. <laughs> so this, the, uh, the shock of seeing the words, this version of macOS uh, cannot be installed on this computer. So that broke his brainwashed state, and he decided to, be, to, to escape to freedom. And... He says, the problem with freedom is that it requires choice. I have spent a week intensively distro hopping, many times feeling this is the one, only to be tempted away by the illusion of finding an even greater perfection. I was on the edge of distro madness when I watched your interview with Joshua Strobel, and I immediately installed Solus Budgie and was in love at first sight. And Solus runs like a gazelle on my i7 MacBook Pro. That's interesting. And I would like to put it on the test on a budget piece of hardware. So I get to my question, and the question is, I was, I was, I'm asked uh, very often by people looking to try Linux, which used secondhand, pre-owned, whatever, laptop for under 
$20 or so do you think is the best for Linux? He says, my, my knowledge is a bit outdated, so I'd like to ask you all the same, this same question. Um, so the best thing that I could say here is that my information about that is also not up to date. So Ryan and Noah would probably be know, know much more about it. So first, uh, Ryan, what, what do you think? Well, there's a couple options here uh, that came to mind. I think Dell and Lenovo are really good laptops that you can find generally in this price range. And a lot of the reasons that you can get a really good laptop from those particular brands in this price range is because of their enterprise-based laptops. So what these companies do is they buy up you know, thousands of these machines. Eventually, a couple years later, they refresh them all. And you'll see a lot of them end up on things like eBay, etc. Uh, it's very hard to give you a specific recommendation because, again, I think you would want to go on an eBay or something like that. At least in my case, this is what I would do and go through and actually search for what machines are out there. Um, I would think something definitely more with four gigabytes of RAM or more because you really don't want to go below that in today's standards. And for the price range you're looking for, you should be able to hit that pretty easily. Uh, so T-Series ThinkPads, EliteBook 8730s and 8740s. Dark One was somebody that I also asked about this question because he buys a lot of the older laptops. Um, and those were two that he recommended that he said work fantastic with Linux. So those are two models you can check out. I can also tell you that, you know, a lot of your 2009 MacBook Pros run fantastic with Linux. Those were some of the computers that I trans um, transformed into Linux machines the advantage, and they're about in that price range now, and the advantage of those is you get the nice aluminum shell in that price range and a pretty good screen and a good keyboard that's backlit, which generally in that price range, you don't see a whole lot of computers uh, like that for there. So that's a couple of recommendations that I can give you. Noah, what are you thinking? I, uh, I agree with half of your recommendations. I disagree with the other half. So um, I'll start, I'll work backwards. So the 2009 MacBook Pro, the issue that I have with that computer is that that's going to be the Core 2 Duo age. And one of the things that I struggle with when I recommend laptops to people is that I feel like people say, I've heard Linux can run on cruddy hardware. So what's the cruddiest piece of hardware, cheapest piece of thing I can run Linux on? <laughs> and then they, well, then they want to compare that to sure. a $2,000 MacBook and then say, well, the MacBook's faster. Well, of course the MacBook's faster. It's a 10-year-old, it's 10 years newer and it costs four times as much, right? So uh, spending a little bit more money, just slightly outside of that budget that you'd recommended will get you leaps and bounds better. Um, I'm willing to go on the record and give you a specific uh, laptop to purchase. Take a look at an X1 Carbon. Like you correctly pointed out, Ryan, there are companies that will buy and, and we sell these, right? They'll, they'll buy a couple thousand of them. They'll use them for four years tops before their lease cycles through. And you have a four-year-old machine that is being sold for $100 or $200, and it was a $2,500 machine when it came out. And then it gets even better because a lot of these companies are going to docking solutions now. So a lot of those laptops have spent their entire lives never even open. Nobody's even really touched them. IT handed it to them. They plugged them into their dock. They left it on their desk, and nobody touched it since then. Does that mean you have to replace the battery? Yeah, most of the time. I'd also throw a, a hard drive in there. And it, like Ryan said, absolute minimum, bare minimum of four gigs of RAM. If you can get it up to eight, you could probably do that for $200. So that's so $250 is 220 euros. So $200 is probably 180 some euros. So it's it's a little bit over your your estimated budget, but I think you're going to appreciate the results a lot more. I would say if you have if you got a if you got a X1 Carbon with I'll say a 4000 series Intel processor i5 or later, 
put an SSD in it and put eight gigs of RAM in there, you're still probably at that $200 price point and your performance is going to be, I'd go on the record and say day-to-day -day performance will be equivalent of a brand new MacBook. If you're browsing the web, checking your email, doing some light video editing, your photo browsing, you're not going to notice a performance difference between a brand new MacBook and that X1 Carbon. I'll tell you, you know, to add on to that, the biggest thing you can do to change the performance of these used older laptops is just what you recommended of slapping an SSD out of there. Mm -hmm. If you go and get one of these budget laptops and you find it for really cheap on eBay or whatnot, the first thing to do if you get it for a great price is just get one of those cheap the SSD prices are just insanely cheap now. You know, spend $50, $75, get you a 240 gigabyte plus SSD, slap that in there. You'll have a whole new, you won't even have to touch the RAM. It'd be nice too, but you won't even have to touch the RAM to get a whole new experience just slapping an SSD in there. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll also add in that if you are comfortable doing repairs, on laptops, I have gotten $1,000 machines currently for a couple hundred dollars with minor repairs like replacing batteries because people don't know how to do that. Um, even if you can do screen replacements and things like that, the machine runs fine, but the screen's cracked, so it loses 75% of its value. So those are ways that you can save money if you have those skills. Would we not recommend anything like the Pinebook for $100? I mean, not the current Pinebook, but the Pinebook Pro for sure. But it has since it's not out yet. As soon as it is out, then it'd be a great, you know, great solution. Uh, mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm excited, but it depends on what kind of what all you want to do with it because it, it's just uh, uh, if you have uh, like certain applications you would need that are not available on ARM, that might be an issue. So it really depends on the, the needs of the of the user. But I do I do think that it would be a great once the Pinebook Pro's out, that would be a great solution as well. Yeah, uh, and I'm I'm excited for that one anyway. Uh, so thanks to Charlie for sending in that question uh, as you know, that gave us a lot of good discussion for that. And uh, he says, I love the show. Keep up the awesome work. And he's off to become a patron. So that's awesome. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in zoom. And uh, also he says, have you tried the uh, Jami messenger from the GNU package team? Uh, and he says he looks excellent. And I technically, I haven't ha I haven't personally tried that yet, but I did see that we're going to talk about it later. So, I'm excited to find out more. Okay, so you know that we want to hear from our listeners. So send us an email uh, asking that burning question or simply giving us some feedback. Send your emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. So on to some distro news. Ubuntu 1804.2 LTS is to get the new hardware enablement stack. Our friend Michael over at Pharonix has come up with some information this week that the Ubuntu team is working to get the hardware enablement stack into the Ubuntu 18.04.2 LTS. Um, this means that there will be better hardware support for GPUs. This hardware enablement implementation was delayed due to the recent Linux kernel regression bug that popped up by a kernel update in the past week. This regression issue caused boot problems with certain GPUs, but has since been patched. Specifically, this HWE stack will give LTS users the Linux kernel and Mesa driver stack from Ubuntu 18.10. So I'm guessing, Ryan, that this is going to help you with your Radian as well? Well, wow. I don't think that this, I don't think this hardware stack has gone into place. If it did... I haven't checked, then no, it doesn't. I mean, you can, and we'll get into this in the Radeon story, but you can boot into Ubuntu with the Radeon 7 
in the current message drivers, but you'll be at 1280 by or 1240 by 780 uh, stuck there the whole time. So I don't know if this hardware enablement stack is going to fix the issue with the Radeon 7, um, but there are workarounds that you can do with Ubuntu, which we'll get into to get that up to the latest uh, Mesa that you'll the, the, the hardware enablement stack is meant to be able to update your kernel and your Mesa's drivers with using this, getting later versions without having to upgrade the entire core system. They can just upgrade the, the fundamental pieces like that. So in theory, with this active, it would allow that in the future. Yeah. So the, the only thing that we're not sure yet is to is whether they're going to be going with the 19, um, the 1904 or the, uh, the 19 kernel, or whether they're going to actually pop the, the Linux kernel 5 in there. Do we know what sort of shut-off date they decide before they're going to go with one or the other? Well, as far as, as far as 19.04, if you're talking about like what kernel they're going to get when they publish it, it will more than likely be 5.0 because by the time that 5.0 comes out, which is actually pretty soon because they've already gone through, I think, like five art release candidates. So mm -hmm. it, it's, it's very likely it'll come within the like, next couple of weeks. And then therefore they have like a month or two, month and a half or so to get it into the main system. So the feature freeze would probably allow it to get in there. And I would say that more than likely it will be because, I mean, if, if anything uh, is, is able to you know, get, get past the ex exception period of the feature freeze, I think uh, the new kernel would be a good option for it. So uh, more than likely it'll be five. But even if it isn't, the 4.20 uh, does have support for the Radiant 7. So the, for the most part, you still have a ma majority of the benefits, but not everything. Yeah. And, and that's where I was getting confused with, like, it's, it's going to be Disco 1904, but they've also got the 419-420 stroke kernel. Um, and I think... I think they'd be mad if they didn't go with the uh, version five kernel because then there'd be another couple of years, whatever, before the, the 2004 came out and they would be accused of sticking with an older kernel um, and you'll always get the naysayers going, oh, they're behind again. Why didn't they go with a five? That's so, true. Yeah, it'd be, good if they can, it'd be good if they can actually put the five in there. That's a good point. But the, I, and speaking of the hardware enablement stack, there's the, the structure of it is intended to be able to update your kernel more often, even if you have an LTS. So that there's, there's potential that even if they didn't come with it, like 1904.1 or whatever could have it. Uh, but actually I don't, I don't think they could, they don't, they do the LTS for that. That gets the, the, uh, the point series. I don't think they do that for the, the uh, nine month series anyway. Um, mm -hmm. But so the 24, the 2004 is the next LTS is guaranteed to have it, but I'm pretty sure that the hardware enablement stack allows you to have newer kernels in the old LTS. So at, at least for um, like when it's as soon as it's fully f uh, developed, you know, I think it's already out right now with the, the 1804.2, um, but I don't know like how new up to date that they're getting the kernels, uh, like how, what their yeah, plan if, is. If it is out, cause I updated before I put the card in, it's not updated enough to actually have the correct yeah. drivers for the Radeon 7, which if that is the case, it would really be a shame that they put a hardware enablement stack on there, but not have the one open source well, vendor's hardware supported in it. To be fair, it's the first version of the hardware enablement stack, so they wanted to use a kernel that they are already heavily tested, and that's why they pulled in the 1810 kernel. That way they don't have to like retest everything in an old LTS base. Whereas I, I think that the the best testament to see how well this will work is when 1904 comes out, will they be able to backport that kernel into the 1804? And if so, that would make it you know a much more viable benefit to the users. 
Plasma 5.15 has been released last week, or this week, rather. The first production release of 2019 of Plasma is now available 5.15.0. Now, the goal of this release is hunting down and removing paper cuts that slow you down. And that is a very interesting way to phrase it, because I have never found any show-stopping problems in KDE Plasma. What I have found is a couple of tiny little things that prevent it from being as competitive as, or as, uh, I guess I should say, as solid as some of the competitive um, proprietary operating systems, right? There are certain things that you would, you would look and you would say, you just wouldn't find those kind of problems in Windows and Mac OS. Now, the other side of that, of course, is that we have way more features than either of those two operating systems have. So if we can hone the process of removing these paper cuts, as they put it, then I think we're going to have a really competitive prod, uh, a product. So some of the changes that they've made, Plasma widgets have received some love. Bluetooth devices now show their battery status. You can download and install new a new wallpaper plugin. File names on the desktops and icons are now more legible due to better spacing. Visually impaired users can now read the icons on the desktop through the newly implemented screen reader. Other widgets improvements such as notes, pop-ups, uh, visuals, all of these things have been have been getting a lot of love and had a lot of attention. In the system settings, uh, some of the most notable noticeable upgrades are visual desktop page redesigned for Wayland support and more standardized icons and improvements. The system settings desktop effects have imported to QT Quick Control 2, which fixes a multitude of functional, uh, fractional scaling appearance issues and ugliness. So overall, a really, really great improvement and a really great release. And again, kind of honing and just kind of perfecting what we already love, I think is going to make for a really competitive desktop. And you're watching that happen on the GNOME side and we're watching that happen on the KDE side and maybe 10 or 15 years from now, some of the tiling desktop managers will start to, well, I don't know, have some improvements and, and, and then we'll really have some competitive advantage in the, in the <laughs> Shots fired there. Oh, uh, sorry, uh, no, they're perfect the way they are. That's what oh, you meant to say. Feature yeah. complete, I think, is the yes. Feature term. complete. Yeah, the feature complete. No, so, I, I think that what you're saying is is absolutely where if I was in control of Linux, where I would tell them the desktop environments need to be right. It, it was it's fixing those small things. It's cleaning up what we already have versus trying to add a ton more features on top. I want the ton new features to come eventually. But you've got to have the the solid base to work on, and there's just enough of these little nagging glitches and you know annoyances that somebody like us we're used to it, we move along, it's no big deal. But somebody who's newer to Linux goes in there and sees that and says, oh, "This doesn't look like a complete project." Um, fully. Not not to pick on KDE, but for example, the file search has never worked for me in Dolphin, right? Like. I open up a I, I open up Dolphin. I go to search for a file. I type for a name of a file that I know is in there, and I, I can't search. Even worse if it's on a network drive, because some you know it's hit or miss if it's if it's on local system on a network drive, it'll almost never find the files on there. Little stuff like that. Now I don't know. Maybe that's a huge fix, but it's something that should be solved. And and at the same time, it's interesting because as I'm using these desktop environments, I get to that pain point, and I'm like. What a stupid freaking thing. Like, how can I use a desktop in 2019 that has a broken search feature? And then I turn around and go to encrypt files and find out that CryFS is built into the Vaults subsystem right on the on the bar. So you don't even have to install anything. You don't have to configure anything. You just click on the little padlock, click create new vault, type in a password, boom, you've got an encrypted file vault. That is so cool. And loads and, and, and light years ahead of what macOS or Windows has. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, we, like you say, we've got these little pain points, these little paper cuts that... 
that just need to be fixed. I mean, as a plasma fan and in, uh, advocate enthusiast or whatever, um, I would have to agree that there are a, a lot of paper cuts that plasma has to deal with. The people who use plasma have to deal with. Uh, as far as the dolphin search thing, local files, I've never had a problem with it, but the networking file search is a uh, hit, hit or miss uh, at best. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, but there's a lot of benefits that all dolphin also has with like a built-in terminal structure where it follows you when you change navigations or directories, very cool feature, not really that great for everybody. So the most people are not going to notice that or even know it exists. So all the different paper cuts that, it, that do exist, they need to address those as soon as possible. Uh, and there's also some that they don't consider to be paper cuts, but totally are, and they refuse to acknowledge them. So there's, there's that kind of an issue where it's. In my opinion, Plasma is the most powerful, the most useful, the most configurable. It is the most customizable. It is, in every way, awesome, except for the default layout of it because you have to deal with all these different paper cuts. But it is nice mm -hmm. to see that they're updating a lot of new stuff, especially with like Discover. Like new, Discover's new update that gives you ability to have uh, flat packs built into it. And you can choose whether you want to get the regular repo install or this, the flat pack install of an app. That's a pretty cool idea. So I like the way that they're doing that. Do you think that is the best place to be spending time on? I mean, if I'm being honest and asking an honest question, the people that are using Plasma, are they really discovering software inside of Discover using that for, for installing software? Are they dropping to a terminal and using the, the, the CLI to, to get the software that they want in? Not saying that we shouldn't have a graphical software center. I just question if that's the most valuable place to be spending developer resources. I think that the the software center is a very important piece because it is a the this the front like when it, because these app stores are now the normal for regular users mm -hmm. uh, when they're coming over from uh, whether it's Windows or Mac like especially Mac because they have their app store but uh, Windows is now have the Windows store and and also the Android market and the the iOS store there's all these different things that people are expecting to have that kind of an experience now like with Linux we kind of invented the idea of the app store with the repos but didn't really did anything about about it we didn't make it easy to use it. And now that we have more more attention through all, you know Steam being bringing us to uh, the, the mainstream more and all that kind of thing, we do need to have a ability to present them in a way to navigate and add applications that are easy. So the terminal is not hard, but it does it is like a a barrier in the sense of like it looks difficult because it looks like the hackery Hollywood approach. So people are right. kind of scared about scared by it by a little bit. So I think that the um, I totally think that the the working on Discover and getting it as seamless as possible for those users who are coming new to Linux, especially considering the, the default layout of Plasma is a Windows par uh, paradigm, it makes them more likely to use it because of the paradigm. So I think that it's it's a it's a pretty good approach. I, I do I need Discover does need a little bit of work still, but it has uh, improved quite a bit over the last few releases. So, Michael, I know I've probably asked this a million times before, every time we talk about a new um, Plasma coming out, mm -hmm. but how long before this becomes available in the Kubuntu backports? Well, Kubuntu depends on the version of Kubuntu. So, like, there's a situation if you want to use the LTS. Like, Kubuntu is for the people who want to use, like, the specific version of an individual. So, like, an individual version of Plasma with an individual version of Ubuntu. So, if, you were, if you're an LTS user and you don't care about the latest version of Plasma, then Kubuntu LTS is the best option because you also get the Plasma LTS. 
So there's it's it's uh, 5.12 is the is the is the one that's in that one. But if you wanted to get the latest version of Plasma in Kubuntu, you totally can. You just got to stay with the up to date for every six months of the new releases of Kubuntu. So if you were using 18.10, or yeah, you could use the Plasma 5.15 already. It's available now. So uh-huh. it's it's technically in a beta state, but the back ports are kind of beta states anyway. So um, as far as like fully available to um, you know the average user, it would probably come out in 1904. So right. uh, so that, that they they iterate every six months to get the latest version, whatever is the latest of Plasma that will be in the next version of that of Kubuntu. But if you if you don't want to wait and you want to get in, you want to use the back ports, you can totally do that with the whatever the current. Uh, six month release is and in this case it is 1810 and so just to clarify it probably 515 probably won't ever be available in 1804 probably not i don't know because uh, in the sense of like how the full structure is built you could argue that it might be in the future like 2004 could keep keep up to date with the, the enablement stack and stuff like that but unfortunately because 1804 has version 5.9 of Qt and uh, 5.15 re- requires at least 5.11 of Qt. It's not right. possible to get it inside of 1804. Gotcha. But going back to Noah's question earlier about Discover, I was thinking about a comment that I had recently on a video where someone said, hey, you got me to switch to Linux. I'm really liking it, but I can't figure out where to get software or find software on the internet to download for Linux. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, a lot of times we're talking now, and I know I've used this as a defense to people who are like, yeah, I'll use Linux if I want to sit in a terminal all day long. And I'm like, well, you really don't have to anymore. Yeah. And I think if you're in a desktop environment and you're going to be a serious competitor to, you know, GNOME and other things, not that they compete, but, you know, a competitor in popularity, at least having a group of people wanting to utilize your desktop environment, you're going to have to have a powerful software store. And Mercati is advanced in almost every area compared to other desktop environments. Its software store is getting much, much better, but I would say it's still inferior to GNOME software by a long shot. And I I think that that's where they're focusing a lot of their attention on. And I think that focus is going to be appreciated a lot more because I know those folks are working hard on Discover. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of work to do and it's getting so much better. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think it is important that they focus their attention there. I, I agree with that to a point. I guess where I I guess where I disagree is I think if we were at a place where we had a standardized set of packaging tools and a standard process to getting the software on the computer, if all of that was standardized on Linux and the only thing left was software discoverability, then I would agree that a software center is the place to try to add um, some functionality. Where we're at today, though, is... It depends on what distro you're at, which depends on which packaging format you use. Depending on what distro you're at, depending on how you add a repository. And if those are still things that users are going to have to struggle with and work through, then I'm left with asking the question, does actually discovering the software with the built-in repositories, you know, does that really gain us a lot of traction? I think I would argue and I would submit to you that Products like the Welcome Center in Ubuntu Mate, where it goes out and streamlines the sources of adding repositories and finding the various software packaging and bringing all those in, has done more for the discoverability of software and installability of software on Linux than pretty much any other distribution software center has. And that's, I guess that's kind of the direction I would really like to see 
a Discover or a, a GNOME Software Center go. I mean, I agree I with mean, that it's... completely because the the fact that they automatically install the PPAs for you and set up everything for you, that is a much better approach. And I, I think that the, the software boutique would be the best solution for every distro or every at least every Ubuntu flavor if they were to just do more than curated applications. If they were to do, you know, because they basically do one or two. But I would two argue for, that is a software store in itself. It's just a very narrowed focus one that you right. get. And by the way, no, I think you're 100% onto something here because the difference is that pops up immediately when you boot in. So this person who asked me that question, how do I get software on Linux? If they had used Mate, they would have known immediately that's where you get software. They would right? have to ask yeah. the question. Click on the, Windows, click on the Windows, boxes that you want. Yeah, in Windows, you're going to be in a browser and you're going to search for the software you want and download. That's what they're used to. That's what they were asking me. So the concept of having a software store to them was confusing. And that was fascinating to me, number one. But you're right. I think if you combine those two, I think it's still a software store in essence. But if you combine those two, then you kind of have the perfect solution. And I think we're moving towards that flat pack, snap, singular situation when they're, because if you look at some of the updates, even with Discover, they're adding in that support for those in there. And so you're going to have that kind of um, universal packaging support that eventually I think most of this stuff's going to move towards anyways. So I think we're at stepping stones. You're way up over here, which is where we want to be. Uh, they're sure. way back here still, but I think they're slowly getting to that. There's ground to be met. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. I can agree with that. So next up in the news is something I am super excited about. I I cannot contain the geekery, the geek squeal that wants to come out over this, and you'll understand why in a moment. So as somebody who creates content, OBS Studios is one of the most important packages for me uh, when I joined Linux and still is one of the most important packages out there for me today. I use it every single time I'm going to do content. It's just an amazing piece of software and it has been everything from doing live streaming on Twitch and YouTube to doing this series here, Destination Linux. Michael, you utilize it We're for using this it right show. Now. It, it's just one of those... All 375 scenes. There you go. Yep. <laughs> it's just one of the most amazing... Uh, programs for people who are content creators out there. One of the issues that's been out there for a while for us Team Red folks is that OBS in Linux specifically did not support AMD's video encoding, which means that when you were live streaming or doing any uh, rendering, instead of utilizing your GPU power, it was utilizing your CPU. There were plugins out there that you could try to get to work. Uh, with varying results, but now those days are over thanks to a new version of OBS. They promised us they were going to do more support in Linux going forward, and they are delivering on that. And now the VA API video encoder that Linux and Intel utilizes will be officially supported in OBS. So right in time for my Radeon 7 card, I can now pass off all of that encoding to my video card and allow it to take the heat, even though my CPU could eat it up pretty good because it was the Ryzen 7. But it's nice to have that option there for others. Uh, and depending, like when I was using my laptops and other things, that could be a killer uh, when you don't have as powerful as a CPU for that. But there is a ton of features going into this release, like the limiter for audio filtering, multi-track audio support, fourth mic auxiliary audio option, stereo balancing, remux recording to MP4, tons of interface improvements out there. I don't know 
how to explain how awesome it is to not only have them come out and say, hey, we're going to do more in Linux, but then deliver on it and then deliver this, which just made me so happy. Yeah, I mean, I, I use OBS almost every day at this rate, and uh, OBS is a fundamental piece and the fact that they're putting all this effort into Linux now is is awesome because there's a lot of times where I would look for something and it says, or I, I find a plugin that's really cool and it goes only for Windows. And it's like, it's, it's unfortunate. But they're also improving the, their plugin support so that it makes it more compatible to have a transition as well. Uh, so that's awesome. And I, I think OBS is, uh, as I said, one of the fundamental pieces of this show, uh, not much less the other content we make we all make because OBS is so useful and I, it, it is one of those things where it's by default it's a really weird thing you got to get used to how it works but once you get used to it there's really no going back it's it's fantastic and it's always great to see when they release new versions because they always add something awesome sounds good so does that mean we'll we'll see a noticeable improvement in your videos ryan what is this attacking me, Zeb? I think your videos are perfect as my videos produced on Linux, produced with OBS, stellar content that fills my brain. I don't know where there is to improve, to be honest with you. I know, exactly. especially since I gave the latest video in 4K, which I'm pretty sure your little computer there, Zeb, that little tiny thing you use, couldn't handle that. We'll see, the, shall we? Does, any, does it ever strike anybody interesting, or have has anybody really noticed the fact that Prior to OBS coming onto the scene, there were a couple of proprietary alternatives that became the the go-to standard for streaming. And OBS enters the 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 scene and crushed them. Uh, well, right. I, I mean, so it takes off and they launch on Linux, and it turns out like the first maybe twenty four hours, it was this crappy alternative that was the thing that you used if you were stuck on that Linux thing. And then like overnight. It just took off, and everywhere mm -hmm. I turn, every Twitch streamer, every YouTube streamer, every content producer, it is the de facto standard to the point that I went into a new uh, TV newsroom, and they were using OBS. Now, granted, not for their main newscast, but they were they needed a spare streaming machine, and they set it up with the OBS. And it's just you go online, you say, what software do I use for streaming? OBS has become the standard, and we have found it to be leading in Linux in every single way. Linux is a first-class citizen on OBS, so that's interesting. So when I see things like multi-track recording and uh, and and audio limiting audio filters and, and things like that, I start to become very excited because one of the things that I have been playing with since basically its inception and it's becoming easier and easier to integrate into OBS is video over IP. So bringing the video in as a network stream into uh, OBS. And there is a new tech standard for doing that. And OBS is one of the first programs to support it. And so when I see stuff like that happening and I look down the road, my use my 10 year scope and say, this is what OBS is working on today. It's competitors really don't have a prayer of even of even catching up to where they are today, much less getting ahead of them. I think it's a really bright future for OBS. And if Linux is a first class citizen, then I think it's a really bright future for Linux and desktop Linux users and people switching over to Linux for production workflows. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the fact that the, the OBS does so much like and is able to do is so flexible that you can do basically any kind of, if you want to be incredibly complicated with your effects and your transitions and your bumpers, and you want to add stingers in between each individual segment, you can. And it's, and it's super seamless. Like the reason, the, one of the things that makes this show possible is that I can do graphics in OBS as we record it and not have to do it after the fact, because doing it in OBS takes 
the amount of time of setup prior to doing it, you know, a couple minutes every, every, every episode. But if I were to do edit it every time and I'd have to apply, you would take the editing to from like a couple hours to 10 hours and the rendering time to from like a, like an hour to five hours or more just by doing the extra graphics on top. So OBS by, because it has all these different features, it saves so much time in so many ways that makes the show actually doable in a reasonable amount of time and effort that it is such an awesome thing. And thank you developers of OBS for making it and supporting Linux with it. Yeah. And what other piece of software to Noah's point could handle Michael's 248 different <laughs> and record it all and record it, uh, you know, it, it record all 250 of those scenes in 10 megabytes or less and seamlessly actually <laughs> 10 it, megabytes or less it, to be fair obs does surprisingly have a small amount of overhead when it comes to like the amount of file size it uses so you could have like four or five hours long like last episode we stayed on the patrons for like over like four and a half hours or so so the recording was only about i think five six gigs and that's a ridiculously small file for such a long recording uh, so mm-hmm. i and especially it was like 1080p five almost five hours that's impressive. Yeah. So it's like an hour for a gig. That, that is very good. So something that's not very good, in fact, not at all good, is that there has been, you may or may not have heard, there's some issues going along with the uh, Linux Tracker website uh, recently. And if you're not aware, Linux Tracker is a site that keeps track of torrents for downloading and sharing Linux distros. And there has been some reports of Linux Tracker being compromised and injecting a crypto miner and injecting excessive ads, including clickjacking. So I do have some good news for you and some bad news. The good news is they have not been compromised. It's so the ISOs and things like that will be theoretically likely to be fine, you know, just like normal. The bad news is that they apparently did both of these things on purpose. So, wow. yeah, so... Personally, I'm not against the, pri- the, the a project using crypto mining to make money off it and support the project, as long as they're willing to tell the people who are participating in that crypto mining and also ask for permission to do so. So technically, Linux Tracker did tell people, they didn't ask for permission, they just did it, but they didn't. they did tell people in a sort of news post a year ago that you can only find if you happen to be looking for uh, you know, news on their site. However, if you click the news tab on their site, it'll be clickjacked because they're doing another thing that's really terrible, which is when you click randomly on their website, it will just open, redirect and open a new pop-up ad of all kinds of different ads, whether it could be a reasonable ad that's not horrible or they could be not safe for work ads that you would definitely not want to have pop up on your website. So there's a limit between something that's reasonable of having ads and even having crypto miners as long as you have permission but they're going beyond i think they've broken that past that limit and uh, it's definitely not something i would approve of um so have you guys heard about this i have i think it's the stupidest move somebody in the linux community could ever try to pull like if you're supporting a windows user group and that's your primary base you could probably get away with some nonsense like this but if you think for one second the linux community is gonna sit by and deal with this kind of crap you've just lost your mind you either are passive aggressive towards the community and you don't care or you're just not being logical and finding ways to fund your project i think you know we talked about this last week the linux community is ridiculously generous Mm -hmm. with money 
They will donate. They will give money. They will help support projects that they believe in. If you're providing a valuable service, and I frankly had never heard of this service before, but it seemed like a lot of people when I saw, saw the news broke were talking about that they used it quite often and liked it, the services that it provided for getting latest ISOs and things to update. Then you can get, if you ask people to um, donate and fund your project. And that's how you would normally do it in the Linux world. That's kind of part of the open source culture. This kind of stuff to me is just a no-go. It's nonsense. It's not a good business model. It's stupid through and through. And as I understand it, it's resulted in several developers now pulling their ISOs directly yep. from the site almost immediately. So now not only are you having the users leave, but the devs are going to pull out immediately as well. And you basically just completely suicided your site. Well, think about it. What do Linux users care about? Well, they care about control over their own system. They care about privacy. They care about uh, technical superiority. Um, and they care about, I mean, if I'm being, let's be honest about it. They care about dissing themselves from any sort of entity, right? They like kind of bucking the norm. Mm -hmm. And what does this do? Well, it takes control away from their system to a certain extent. It puts the the man back in charge because now it's you're supporting essentially, a, you know, this corporation against the user's control, I might add. You're insulting that user's intelligence by trying to assume that they're not aware that this the technical thing is happening on their system and you're assuming that they would not figure it out. Uh, so it pretty much goes right down the, the line and checks all the boxes of everything you wouldn't want to do to a Linux user, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. is the kind of stuff that people left Mac OS and Windows to get away from. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's kind of interesting because when they first started doing the crypto miner thing, they said uh, they they in their announcement, which is very tiny, and at the time that they did it was visible on their homepage. Now you have to dig for it. And they also don't even have links to, to their blog post or their news post because their website is uh, it needs work in many ways. Uh, but they said uh, in their post, their announcement, it said, you'll notice that there's less ads on the site because we've gotten rid of ads in favor of doing altcoin alt mining. And we, do, we need this to, your help with that. So they, and they say that they, you can uh, choose to do, be part of the mining if you're logged in. But they didn't say anything about people who are not logged in. And in my testing, when I went to their website, the mining was active through, uh, I think it was called AuthMind. That's the name of the, of the script. It's a JavaScript uh, thing that's running in the background. And it apparently is, is constantly being run. So the, the statement of one, less ads, true at the time. Then they brought the ads back. So now they, have, they had ads and they had mining. Then they also made it where that having ads is not enough. They also have to do push notifications to be incredibly annoying. Then on the desktop, they wanted to do click jacking so that when you click random places, it will just open up stuff that you did not want and refuse to go to the place that you actually wanted. So everything that they're doing here to make money is the worst thing you could do. Like crypto mining, I can understand a, a, pro a project or a website wanting to do that. All you have to do is the thing that a ton of websites do it's pop up a little notification and instead of saying you know we we have cookies on our website it could say we would like to your help to mine a, uh, a coin an altcoin or whatever and you could help us mine it and you don't have to do anything except sit on our website but and then by clicking yes i agree or i consent or something then it could activate it and if you didn't consent it wouldn't and if you did that people wouldn't be uh, up in arms about you know hating this action 
also ads, if you have ads on your website, a lot of websites have ads. A lot of Linux websites have ads. I mean, Veronix is a good example of having ads and being supported mm-hmm. by ads. But they do it in any reasonable amount. They only do banner ads, and they only do them, they, and there's no pop-ups, and there's no click-jacking, and there's all this other stuff that, that you're doing. So stop it. All right, let's get to the main event, gentlemen. This is the main story of the entire show. Let's be honest. The most important story of the entire show. You're going to really make this Especially when you're talking about... Yeah, I mean... No, it's my mic time, Zeb. You quit hogging. This is my time. This is my time. But you're such a Linux advocate. I wonder why you're getting so excited about Windows ARM laptops now running on Ubuntu. Oh, sorry. There's another story first. So yeah, go on in. Wow. I, I want you to look at something that you couldn't possibly comprehend the power of, Zeb, because in my hands right now, if you think about technology, if you love technology, you have to give a moment of respect to the fact that I am holding here the world's first ever seven nanometer GPU. And that, because there's such a limited quantity of these, is such an interesting thing because irregardless if you're an AMD fan or an NVIDIA fan, the fact is that having this seven nanometer GPU out there is pushing the boundaries of technology that now everybody is going to go out and try to replicate out there. So what we are talking about, of course, is I finally have my hands on the Radeon 7 video card and I am very happy with it so far, but it is not all roses, which Zeb is going to love to hear. But I am not someone who will not fall on my sword, and I will give you the true story of the Radeon 7. But I did just get it today, an hour or so before the show uh, we started recording, so I haven't spent a lot of time with it. But there are some, some things that AMD did here that were wrong. And there are some great things here that AMD has in its lineup. And we're going to do, I'm going to do a whole video series on that, as well as look at things outside of gaming on my own channel with this card. But this so is just a quick question there. Is, is one of the mistakes they made was that it, the seven nanometers is so thin that they couldn't fit UEFI in? <laughs> All right, Zeb, listen. That actually is, I can't make an excuse for this. So one of the stupid things that AMD did here, one of the stupid things AMD did is they shipped a card without UEFI support. I don't know how it leaves without UEFI support in today's day and age. So in order to boot it, if you were one of the folks who got it literally the next day after it launched, or maybe you found a store that had it, uh, you would have to go into legacy mode in your BIOS to boot the card. A really silly and stupid mistake on AMD's part. With that being said, it's been patched and uh, you can go and flash your motherboard BIOS, which I did before I got the card. Thankfully, FedEx took forever to get me the card. So that (laughs) gave me plenty of time to prepare for things like this. Um, You could flash your BIOS and and you'll be all set. The other thing I want to say is, you know, this AMD, we talk about me being a fanboy of AMD, and it's true because I like the underdog in this case. NVIDIA and Intel have dominated for very long, and that has created, in some cases, many shady instances of showing off technologies that aren't really new and price gouging and everything else that goes on, which is why no matter what we're talking about, competition is very important to have out there. With that, AMD is also one of the first ones to, you know, with Intel, but Intel doesn't have a dedicated GPU out there yet. Um, but AMD is the first real dedicated GPU that is full open source, meaning they went full in on open source, which makes it kind of 
embarrassing to the fact that if you were to take this card as I did and shove it in your machine and boot it, that you're going to be stuck on 1280 by 720 resolution in Ubuntu. Because the fact is that the drivers for this card that support this card, AMD did do a good job and get the hardware enablement in the kernel, in the mess of drivers, but that starts at 4.20 kernel, not anything before. And because we talked about the hardware enablement stack up above, which we believe has actually already went in, didn't have the latest uh, drivers in there. It doesn't appear to, it doesn't work for that. So this is something that I also question that this is a good time for AMD and the distro makers out there um, to really start thinking about how, if we're going to talk about Linux being for, and this is a big cause that I've had for a long time, being more than just something that revitalizes old machines, but something that's cutting edge, that we do need to make sure at least that we get these hardware enablement stacks in very quickly so that when the latest and greatest hardware is out there, it's supported in these systems. With that said, with all of those said, so now I got all your little critiques out of the way, Zeb, the card (laughs) is screaming fast. So I updated Ubuntu to the 4.20 kernel. I have also, of course, booted into Arch where I don't have to worry about any of that nonsense. And it works right out of the box. Uh, because it has the latest kernel in it. And I literally, uh, you know, hearing all these negative reviews and stuff of people saying, oh, it's not as fast as this card or that. I looked at some of the results that I was getting on this card. Some of the frames per second were talking well into the 200 mark. Just insane in games. And I found it to be, uh, you know, I have to spend more time with this card and I think it will be interesting. It is not the card we all hope for. We're going to have to wait for the next generation that will be coming out of AMD to see if they can do something more. But it certainly competes up to the 2080 line. And the Vega 64, to me, competed with the 1080 line. I think it does a great job. It's a great price point. And I think we have to keep in mind here that this is the first time a consumer has held a seven nanometer GPU in their hands. And that means something from a technology standpoint, pushing it forward. So with all that said, I'm very, very excited about this card. Yeah. And also if, especially the seven nanometer is important and uh, be sure to put F in the comments for respect. (laughs) (laughs) And although we know Ryan and I joke about team red and team green, um, you've, you've got to be excited about what AMD um, have been doing. If you, if you were to go back three or four years, they were nowhere in the marketplace. If you wanted to do gaming, you had to do NVIDIA. But what they're doing now is they're, they're, they've got the A crew uh, in, you know, in, their, in their boat and they're, they're rowing like crazy and they're catching NVIDIA up. And NVIDIA are now going to have to start bringing their game, their A game to the table as well. They can't just keep tweaking the current processor because we know that they've underclocked their current set of cards to a ridiculous level. Um, we've had people out there who've been clocking them to, to, to stupid levels because what they'll do now is the, the, the Radeon 7 has come out. So you can guarantee within the next six months, um, NVIDIA will bring out another card, but it will be based on the same RTX 20 whatever series, and they'll just release a bit more of that horsepower that they've got under the belt. So they're not really innovating, which is what AMD are doing. So as much as I I do, you know, rattle Ryan's cage about the AMD side of things, they really are showing NVIDIA the way to go. And if NVIDIA don't start thinking about what they're doing and don't just keep tweaking those little... 
um, CPUs that they've got, they will be overtaken, I would say, within the next five years if it carries on the way it is. NVIDIA, for the longest time, do you know who their biggest competition was? Themselves. I mean, yeah. that's really what it was. I mean, when they would invent Fact. a new graphics card, they really had to just compete with what they had done last time. And that was the bar that they had to set. And that's a really bad market infrastructure when you have one company that essentially has to do everything. And I tell you what, what really sold me on something other than NVIDIA was for the longest time, I just kind of started to, to accept the fact that if I wanted to have a perfect experience on Linux, I went with integrated graphics. And if I wanted to have a, a reasonably decent experience on most distributions and I needed some extra horsepower, then I installed an NVIDIA graphics card. And Ryan talked me, what, what, what card did you end up talking me into, Ryan? The Vega 64? Uh, Vega 64, I, 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 that doesn't sound right. But oh, it, was it the RX 580? RX 580, that's yeah. what it was, yes. Okay. So, and, and I put it into my main machine and booted back into KDE. And I'd say once a week with NVIDIA, KDE would just, the entire desktop would just lock up, freeze, and I just couldn't do anything. Put, that, put the, the RX 580 in there, almost overnight, well, exactly overnight, because it was, you know, took 30 seconds to swap the graphics card, but once I swapped that out, flawless experience on Linux, flawless yeah. experience. And so I, I come to a point where I have to acknowledge, if we're serious about our commitment to Linux and we're serious about trying to move the market forward, then that's the way to do it, is to get some competition in there. So I guess that's really just a long-winded way of just saying what all you gentlemen just said, but I agree. No, I think it's a brilliant point because one of the things I didn't cover with AMD is you can discuss, you know, the 20, 30 frame per second differences that NVIDIA is making. And there's no doubt NVIDIA is a higher, they have the highest performance card out there. There's no questioning it. But one of the things, and generally that's where I would always go because I'm a horsepower kind of person. I build, you know, I built the beast from the ground up and I always put the latest and greatest, but they're what AMD offered that I didn't expect uh, to love so much was the ability to go to any Linux distro period and be able to run it without having crashes or issues or worry that I'm not going to be able to boot into my system because the proprietary driver failed or this type of thing happened. It just works all the time. And that's why it frustrates me to see this situation with the Vegas seven, particularly where you have to be on the latest kernel but the distros don't have that available, you know, the, the hardware enablement stack for the GPU specifically available. Not all the distros have that. So then if somebody goes and says, wow, I've listened to the show and Ryan says, this is my experience. If you get something past the Vegas 64 until we get to Ubuntu 19.04, theoretically here, which most, a lot of people are going to be on the Ubuntu base, you're not going to have that experience. You're going to boot in, you're going to have this 1280 by 720, then you have to try to figure out how to get a new kernel. On your machine. So I think there's some work to improve this, but this is the model, as you said, Noah, that we want to push forward. This is the open source. This is the only open source driver GPU we have out there, fully open source, truly open source drivers we have out there, uh, cards. So this is where we want to push things. So talking of pushing things, um, our, our, our earlier email talked about low-cost laptops that can run Linux. Um, now, one of the options that we didn't discuss at the time, because we knew that we had this particular um, article coming up, was that you can now use Ubuntu on Windows ARM laptops. So we all know that the ARM-based laptops are that much cheaper to produce. They don't necessarily have uh, the processing power that all the other laptops have. But if you're in the market for something along the lines uh, of a Chromebook, but that you want it to do that little bit more, then certainly a laptop running the ARM-based processors 
um, should work quite well. So running Linux on ARM is not a brand new concept, but it does come with some annoyances and kinks. However, the AA Arch 64 laptops project aims to simplify the process of getting Linux on ARM. Now, I'm not an ARM expert, uh, and I'm, but I'm, I would imagine that somebody like Noah would be, because I know he's, he loves stuff like the Raspberry Pi. So are you aware of, of, of a really good reason why people would want to buy a Windows laptop and then pop uh, Ubuntu in it, apart from the fact they get rid of Windows? So not dissimilar to what we were talking about before with competition in all areas moving the ball forward. That is true in the processor world as well, right? Linus Torvalds himself said that he thinks one of the most promising, um, most beneficial infrastructure changes from the hardware side is the invention and, and, and in ARM. And what's interesting about ARM processors is they... This isn't an exact metric, but they pretty much double every year in, in processing power size, which is one of the issues I have with embedded devices that are running ARM is that if you buy, you know, a $2,000 television and it's got this ARM-based processor in it, understand that the processing power that you're going to get even one year later is going to be about twice that. Um, and so with that kind of progression, we, to the best of my knowledge, there still isn't a machine out there, a single machine out there that is is simple enough to, to uh, be able to... Uh, compile the the arm linux kernel on the device itself so they're still having to use other infrastructure or other um, architecture to do that but we're we're very close to working our way there and what you find is the the design specifications of windows and linux right you got to remember windows was designed as this big bloated thing desktop thing and we tried to scale it down to fit it on a phone that didn't work we scaled it down tried to fit it on a netbook that didn't work so it really just kind of exists in a laptop or desktop form linux is an entire diff entirely different animal we have various different desktop environments we have the linux kernel itself and we can scale that up to meet any need which is why you have busybox that's running on ubiquity access points and you have kde kubuntu that's running on this laptop and both are running the Linux kernel. Both can do a lot of similar things, but they meet totally different, uh, are totally different use cases. And so when you start to look at small ARM devices, very powerful ARM devices, what you find very quickly is that the Linux operating system is going to be a better suited operating system to function because when KDE is too too large or too memory intensive or too processor intensive to run on a tiny little ARM stick computer that you plug into the back of your TV, guess what? You've got Ubuntu Mate. You've got XFCE. Heck, you have those. Uh, you have uh, windowless desktop man. You know, desktop uh, tiling window managers that you could use if you wanted to really scale down the resources. So, for those reasons, I think that would be why you would want to put them on ARM computers. The, the thing that is going to be interesting to watch is with this particular project is there is a issue trying to get linux to work properly with these chipsets because microsoft had agreements with these with qualcomm and, and so on and so forth to make these chipsets work with the windows operating system so now we have a bunch of geeks that have been introduced to trying to get this code to run properly with these qualcomm uh, chipsets and that what that's going to lead to is it's going to take a little bit longer to get off the ground but once it does i think what you're going to find is it's going to have the netbook effect where nobody is going to want to run windows on these things everybody's going to want, want to run linux because the experience is so much better same reason that you're finding people going to chromebooks so from a competition point of view then would you say that the arm processors because uh, i think normally when you buy a a, a low-cost laptop they've normally got some sort of celeron processor in there so is this the sort of market they're, they're trying to attack with these faster, bigger, more powerful ARM computers? Look, we talk about 
AMD and Intel and everybody being competition, but there's one company all of them are afraid of. It's ARM right now. Uh, they What Noah was saying is absolutely factual. I think they own 90% or more of the smartphone market, number one, for processing. Um, you're starting to see them more and more start get integrated into the laptops. And frankly, the power of these processors is just intimidating the more and more that they uh, the more and more that they release there. In fact, I believe I'd have to look this up for sure that they may be the creators of the first seven nanometer CPU is arm based. So regardless, <laughs> I think that what we have here is a situation where, you know, you can now take these low cost laptops where people need to, they don't have a ton of money to spend on it. You can throw Linux on them without having a ton of headaches because that's going to keep a lot of new entry level individuals from trying it if you have the step of 1700 terminal commands you have to type in or all these configurations or things and now you can throw linux on it with no problem like you pretty much can any dell or um, lenovo laptop that you go grab it's pretty a painless experience to get linux on it today and being able to do that with arm i think is going to be very important for the competition of linux in the future because arm is a major competitor in the market right now yes very true and also just to point out that it is not surprising that Microsoft would have a deal with these companies to make it exclusive to Windows or at least painful enough where someone has to do extra stuff to get it to work. So that's just a Shocking. reminder a reminder of people who are constantly promoting uh, Microsoft has changed in some ways and in some ways not. So just wanted to put that out there. But I do think that ARM's, ARM processors are a very a big game changer, especially with the Pinebook Pro coming. I can't wait to play with that thing. The Raspberry Pi Foundation and the ESA Education uh, have kicked off. Now, this is a really cool, uh, I, I don't know if I really want to call it a program, but initiative, I guess we could call it. And the idea is to celebrate the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. Supporting uh, the occasion is astronaut Jenny Sidney, City, excuse me, who will officially kick off the 2019 European Astro Pie Challenge. Now, the challenge itself is open to boys and girls, so it's not gender specific, but they're working to encourage girls to participate in a partnership. Um, the program offers the student a chance to do space-based scientific investigation using Raspberry Pi computers on the International Space Station. It focuses on coding projects that will help shape the future of space exploration. Uh, City has this to say, coding has been an integral to space exploration. It's an incredibly important uh, science that dates back to the early lunar missions when we were first in the Apollo program. This, I think this is really cool. I think this is a really great initiative. It's actually something that we've actually looked at starting here in Grand Forks is trying to get uh, younger and younger kids involved with technology. And the interesting thing about it is, and how it relates to Linux, is these kind of initiatives simply would not exist if it wasn't for the existence of Linux, right? Because the open source community and the makerspace community and the Linux community came together to put together something like the Raspberry Pi, a small, affordable, complete computer that you can buy for just under 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. Without that kind of device and without the software that would run on it, because mind you, Microsoft would not have a whole lot of interest in making Windows for a $50 Raspberry Pi. Until, of course, it takes off and becomes hugely successful and they realize that that's where all of the development is going, right? And then all of a sudden <laughs> they're interested and then they try to go there and, oh, guess what? Nobody uses it. So um, what I think we have to acknowledge here is, is that it's because of the hard work of a lot of people and a lot of organizations that have led to, to a point where we can now have a day to try to introduce people who wouldn't ordinarily be 
in computer science, wouldn't ordinarily be in coding, uh, and wouldn't necessarily have an opportunity to to take on some of these, you know, as they put space exploration. Now, I think that's probably exaggerating just a little bit, right? I mean, I don't know how much actual space exploration these kids are going to do, but it gets them started on that track. And that wouldn't exist, fundamentally wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Linux and if it wasn't for projects like the Raspberry Pi. So mm. I think this is really cool. Yeah. Did, did I read it as well that the, so as you say, it's not really a competition, but if, that if they're projects that they're working on are they already predefined projects that you can do on a raspberry pi or are they looking for these students to come up with projects no, that I, they'd like to see worked on the place on the uh, space station no my understanding is that they're they they already have the project so they have these uh, they have basically like uh, like things to investigate space based mm -hmm. things that you investigate on the pi and uh, and then you participate in it I'm not sure how the coding part ties into that. Um, I, I did a little bit of digging on it to see, but I, I wasn't able to to really figure out how how do you how exactly do you? Yeah, code? there's just a couple of coding challenges, and it depends on. And they have some modules set up uh, based on the screenshots that I saw that the kids would go in based on their age group, and they basically have simpler problems for the students up to 14 years of age, and then more advanced coding things to develop for kids that are 19 years or older or up to 19 years, 14 to 19 years old. And I thought this was just amazing to get both boys and girls interested from a young age, number one, into coding and number two, kind of into exploration and space and technology, right, from a very early age on. So I think it's an amazing project and I'm so happy that it's continuing on. It's been going on for multiple years now. And I love that Raspberry Pi is the basis for them trying to get the kids into it because it's just a great starting stone for our stepping stone for kids in the Linux arena uh, right there with Raspberry Pi. So the more, more of those get in people's hands and they realize this is where they start coding, this is where they learn the code, the more they're going to learn about it and lead them into, you know, being raised properly in Linux. All right, next up we have good guy malware, or maybe not so good. A very strange story appeared here. So there's a new Linux virus that has appeared that looks to mine Bitcoin from unsuspecting targets. What makes this one particularly interesting, though, is it's jealous of any other malware that you might have on your computer that's also <laughs> mining on it. So it... It has a unique benefit in that it will go through once it is able to get on your system and remove any other malware that you've downloaded and then make sure it has all of your resources all for itself. So the script uses code from Corkards and relies on cron tabs to make sure that it launches each and every time that it reboots. It has the ability to access your GPU and your CPU to power all of its bit mining tasks. The virus targets systems via IP cameras and web services on TCP port 8161, which the attacker then uses to send a cron tab file with the purpose of downloading a shell script. So make sure to track your resource usage if you suspect something may be awry and keep your system up to date to avoid becoming a victim of this mining operation. Apparently, this isn't the first time that a virus has done this where it removes other viruses. I thought that was hilarious when I heard that. Yeah, I've seen it a couple times. I think this is the third time I've seen it. And uh, there's actually been, there was one time there was an announcement where this, this research company was 
uh, figuring, trying to figure out how this one piece of software was working. Uh, this one, like, uh, it was an attack vector approach. Like, it was some kind of script that they were trying to, like, just reverse engineer. Then they figured it out. But the reason they, they the, the thing that's amazing about it is that once they figured out what it was doing, they also found that it was doing the same kind of thing that this application was. It was removing the malware. And they had never heard of the malware that they had found. So, like, the fact that this one was, like, removing those things actually informed them that these existed in the first place. So, th this kind of thing is actually, it's kind of hilarious, but at the same time, it's, like, um, it, it's just, it's hilarious that they are competing with each other to screw over your computer and at the same time helping you kind of help uh, remove the people who are trying to fight them for it. So, I mean, it it's, it's, good, it's, it's good that we know that these exist, but, you know, people should just stop being horrible. There you go. So this week we are honored to have one of our favorite guests on the show, a repeat guest, Liam from Gaming on Linux. Yeah. Yay. This is our favorite source of gaming news. If you are not a part of GamingOnLinux.com yet, you need to be. So Liam, it's been a few months since you've been on the show, so we are looking forward to hearing what you think are some of the most exciting things going on right now in Linux gaming. How's it going? Yeah, it's been quite a while. I think I was last on December. Way mm -hmm. too long. Way too yeah. long. Yeah. Obviously, yeah, things are always moving pretty quickly. And there's been hundreds upon hundreds of things that have happened since then. And there's going to be a lot more going on as well. There's... Some pretty big things going on as well. Oh, from yeah. What I've heard. So uh, especially, I mean, speaking of the big things, there was this, uh, there's this, you know, we have to celebrate one of the biggest things. And that is um, the, the the release of the, you know Steam has been around for six years now, and that's the the anniversary of Steam being around is like like it's one of the biggest things that's happened to Linux in, as far as gaming goes ever. So we have all these different things like the um, the release of Steam machines, which you know anyway the the Steam Link, which again but still better because they did make it into a raspberry pi thing so that's great but the controller is pretty cool and the htc vive is awesome uh and they've also but the, but the just steam play itself has brought so much impact to the linux gaming world um and we we noticed you wrote an article about it on the, this this week so uh just want to get your perspective from the you know how much has steam affected the gaming on linux scene in your perspective well Without Steam being on Linux, I mean, we'd be back in the dark ages, basically. So, <laughs> for lack of a better way to properly explain it, I mean, that's that's what it was back then. We got a trickle of indie games. We had Humble Indie Bundle, which they don't really do anymore. L Loki came and went. Linux Game Publishing came and went. You know, you had all these sorts of things pop up and disappear, and nothing really got st stuck in place until steam came along so having steam on linux has obviously been a dramatic change and because valve fund so many different open source projects as well and like contract people to work on open source they've not just changed gaming but they've changed linux oh yeah absolutely because especially with our graphics drivers as well. There's no way our graphics drivers would be as good as they are today without Steam being on Linux. Mm -hmm. There's no way because the um, the amount of releases and the amount of work put into it 
again, that increased dramatically after Steam released for Linux. It's yeah. just, it's, it's madness how far we have come in those six years. I didn't believe it was six years. <laughs> Actually, it feels like longer, but I know it's not. And when, they, when it was first, uh, like, rumored that it was going to happen, no one believed it. Because, like, yeah, sure, nope. this is going to happen. And then when it finally does happen, it just turns the the market or the ecosystem completely on its head and actually brings in so many more users so many more possibilities and especially like you're talking about the driver structure like so much more work is being put into the open source thing and you could even argue that in a way maybe this influenced amd to open sourcing their drivers because this was like a year or two before they did any of that so like they saw it if valve's going to put their you know their backing behind the platform maybe it's okay if you know amd did it and then that has a big game changer as well in many ways. So like just overall, like not even counting the fact that they are, aren't they funding the guy who makes DXBK and stuff like that? Yes. Yes, they are. Yeah. So like there's doing so much for it that even just bringing games to the platform is, I don't know. It's, it's, it's it, just six years feels like, um, you know, it's, it's always been there now at this point, but I know it's, you know, as someone who's been using it for way longer than that. Yeah, it wasn't. We had about five games at that time. So now to have like 5,000 or more is awesome. Well, yes. and to your point about bringing game, you know, people to Linux, there is no way had this not been around three years ago that I would have stayed on Linux had Steam not been around. I would have gone into Linux, not seen that there was any way to game on any relevant titles and left. I mean, I just wouldn't have given it a second thought because I've got thousands of dollars invested in hardware here. I'm not going to, and I love Super Tux Cart in those games, but I'm not going to just sit there and, and, and <laughs> so, play that stuff. So to, so to dovetail on to that, Ryan, Liam, do you see a potential for Linux to become the de facto game operating system because of the performance increases that we've seen in Linux, because of the fact that it's an open platform that game developers can rely on to be there, be consistent for them? Do you see a time when gaming shifts from a Windows-centric operating system to a Linux-centric operating system? Is that something that we think could happen? I think there's... Obviously, there's always going to be a possibility of that. I think the major change there is going to be game streaming platforms, which the majority of them, in fact, probably all of them, will be running on Linux. And obviously, to do that, the games themselves will either have to run through some sort of emulation system or not emulation system, but something, you know, more like Wine and Steam Play and so on. But even um, Google's Project Stream, everything behind that is Linux. And you think about it, it, if all these big companies, like I think it's EA, then you've got Google, Sony, and all these other companies, they're all moving into game streaming, which will all be running on Linux or some sort of BSD. So there's going to be a lot of wiggle room there because once they've got the games onto Linux to do on these streaming platforms, there's always that possibility that they can put it, you know, a normal release out on their own store for actual desktop Linux as well. I think that is going to be a huge thing. I didn't think it was going to be. People were emailing in about Google's Project Stream saying how well it works and so on. And it wasn't until I actually saw it and people were saying, look, I've actually got into the test on it. And people were showing me pictures and videos and stuff of it running on Linux. And it's like, wow, you know, that's crazy. But being as it's Google, what's the yeah. chances of it be going the way of 
Google Plus. Yeah, that that is an issue. I mean, I if that's the way things are going to go, then I've no doubt Steam will also go that way. I I wrote an article about this a while ago that I think within the next five to ten years, Steam will have some sort of streaming service, some sort of subscription service or something. And I honestly think that's what the sort of end game is for things like Steam Play, because then they have no licensing issues or costs with Windows. All of their servers and all of the platforms actually doing the streaming would just be running on Linux using the software that they've been building with Steam Play for a couple of years. But with streaming services, it's obviously yet another layer of DRM you don't again you you have even less rights again you don't own them and it's just it does have a lot of issues but it's still quite an exciting technology Mm -hmm. and just to sort of bring in another subject on that streaming thing but it's also another subject that we were going to talk about if they did start streaming the services rather than having them native on let's say you know 90 percent are on windows would that negate the necessity for having an anti-cheat module well, you could run it on the server itself, likely. Well, that yeah, that's the thing, because the games wouldn't aren't running on your computer. The games are running on their server, so they've already got all that sorted out on their mm-hmm. end. Every, everything like that would be on their end. So, yeah, it just it wouldn't be an issue. But on that note about anti-cheat, for those who've tried out Steam Play, you've probably seen that a lot of games don't work because of things like easy anti-cheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, BattleEye and various anti-cheat services. I tried to reach out to Easy Anti-Cheat three or four times to have a chat with them to see if they were doing anything about it. And they didn't reply. I spoke to Valve. They didn't reply. But then it turned up on Reddit that some support staff or something replied from Easy Anti-Cheat. And they said they're actually working with Valve on getting Easy Anti-Cheat to work in Steam Play. And then somebody pointed out that on a Discord, one of the people at Valve basically confirmed it as well, that they're in discussions about it. So things are moving along because... It makes you wonder why they're happy to sort of have this leak out on social media, but they won't um, respond to somebody as big in the gaming world as yourself. Well, initially, I, I was a bit confused why no one was talking, but then you've got to think about it a bit more logically that if it's only in discussions and they're sorting out non-disclosure agreements and stuff between them, they don't really have a lot of talk to talk about right now. They don't want to cause a big fuss about it, but obviously it went on to Reddit, so it's already caused a fuss. So. <laughs> well, if they would announce it, it'd be much bigger and like our headlines we picked up everywhere. Yeah. So like there's like, it makes sense that they would, you know, not, not promote it officially because that way they could, Still well, kind then you of... legitimize it too, right? Yeah, exactly. You legitimize yeah. the discussion. Yeah, and also they, maybe if it's still in discussion right now, they, it could backfire. Then maybe they yeah. have NDAs and everything, so it's just better to. But are there fears for these it. anti-cheat things? You know, Michael, that would run on your system. That you know, let's say Steam does support it. I mean, wouldn't that still create security concerns potentially? Because based on how some of these tools work anti-cheating they have to log activity while it's running so linux people generally don't like that to be fair in the way that they're talking about doing it it's going to be included in steam play in general so it wouldn't be tracking 
how you would be running everything in your system. It would be running how you're running things through Steamplay and how these games are being interacted through Steamplay. So they kind of have a little bit. It's not really contained, but it's more. It's more so contained than Wine would be. I have. Uh, I. I. My. Liam. My. Uh, my gaming knowledge is somewhat limited, and that's being polite about it. But I do know a good first-person shooter, and I am a huge fan of Counter-Strike. Um, Counter Strike Go. I understand that uh, Tannenberg might be something I should check out. Yeah, yeah. Tannenberg. It's well compared to Counter Strike Go. It's a very different game. It's far more brutal, far dirtier. It's awesome. Faster. <laughs> it's more realistic in a way. Okay. Not not exactly amazingly realistic, but I mean, it is. It's still an indie game. They still have a small budget, but it's a good game. I, I enjoy it. It's it's surprising really because they they made a game called Verdun, which was a more claustrophobic shooter because a lot of it was running through trenches and things like that. The maps are smaller and so on. And then they've made a standalone expansion with Tannenberg, and the maps are like a, a lot bigger, more open, and it's the spawn system that I really really like. You're you're sort of zoomed all the way out when you start, and all you see is the map with different sectors. And as you pick a place to spawn, the camera just zooms right into your character in and boom, you're there. Mm-hmm. And it's, huh. it's so it's so cool the way it's done. I, I, I love it every time I see it. So, I'm, I'm crap at it, but you know it's so just fun. Would would yeah. is it uh, is the gameplay? You said it's faster. Is do you so for example, do you spawn immediately after death, or do you wait until the entire round is complete before you? Uh, no, Counter Strike, I guess, is a way to ask. You so. Once once you die, there's like a, a countdown timer, but it's only like a couple seconds, and then you'll either pick like a sector to spawn in or a person on your squad to spawn with, and then you know the camera will zoom in, and then you're back there again. Awesome. But so, it's you, sorry, you talked about Verdun there, um, and have they changed the respawning in Tannenberg? Because if you don't know the maps and you don't really get into the game, I think the first six times I played it, I got shot as a deserter every time because I was going the wrong way on the map. Yeah, see, that's another issue that I actually had with Verdun. I found Verdun very confusing in the layout of everything and nothing really made sense about it. Whereas Tannenberg, I found that everything's very clear Mm -hmm. because when when you're actually looking at the map, you know exactly what sectors are yours, where you can't go. Right. It's it's much much clearer, and uh, they've completely overhauled the interface for both Verdun and Tannenberg, and it looks good. It's crystal clear now. It no. is a good first person shooter if you like sort of well, you know, your older style shooters because it is during I think it's the First World War. Mm-hmm. So we like to game together as a group, you know, playing Ballistic Overkill, CS:GO, something like that. Is this multiplayer support right out the bat where we could? join in in groups and go off or is this just a single player game no no it's it's fully multiplayer but what i like about it is that if you can't find a lot of people it just rams full of bots and the bots are actually reasonably good yeah it's it's good it is very good it's difficult it's definitely difficult because it's got that more realist like realistic base to it so you know you get shot and you don't get health cut you're just you're dead and then you've got to respawn mm-hmm. it's it does take a bit of getting used to but it's a it's worthwhile checking out if you do like your first person shooters it's more akin to something like sort of battlefield one sort of thing for those that know those games it's it's mm-hmm. very different to csgo 
And so is it is it playable on um, those machines that are unfortunate enough to have the AMD graphics card? Can it cope with so the level of detail? Rude. So rude. <laughs> Savage. From what I understand, yeah, it works on AMD. I've seen I've seen people running it on AMD. Of course it works on AMD Zeb. Of course it does. That was so rude of you. <laughs> but is by it, the is way, it, by the way, I do have a follow-up question. Uh, for people like Zeb who take three months to get off the mountain on Tomb Raider, would this be a game <laughs> you would recommend for him to play? Yeah, it's a, it's a very streamlined game. Perfect. I mean, okay, good. I, I I don't have a lot of issues with it when I do have a lot of issues with other first-person shooters. So, yeah, I think I think it's a good one. Does it yeah, and, and games like this are quite easy because it's just run and shoot. So it's a bit yeah. like drive and break. So as long as you can do that sort of thing, it's when you've it's when you've got a run, shoot, leap up, grab hold of a lamppost, swing across <laughs> something, wait for the other thing to come. No, forget it. It's just not happening. I'll just run up and down the mountain. I'm happy with that. Nice. Yeah, no, there's none of that. Good, good. So one more question. We we talked earlier on about the HTC Vive headset. And I'm curious what your thoughts on this, because back when they were talking about these headsets, they were like, this is the next, you know, 20 bajillion dollar industry. It's going to, these are going to fly off the shelf. This is the next hot thing. That doesn't seem to be the case, whether you're in Linux or any other OS that these things really took off. Do you have any thoughts on that? Have you played with them? Do you think it's still emerging? Uh, Well, see, I've, I have now actually played with one because, thankfully, my local uh, game store actually has different VR headsets in where you can just go in and just be like, right, mate, yeah, I'm just going to try it out. And it's surprisingly good. Yeah, Um, it completely sucked me in when I tried it, and I thought, wow, you know, I I need to own one of these. (laughs) It did have a bit of a slow start, but um, looking at it now... Funnily enough, when looking on Steam, so Steam have their hardware survey that they do every month and they sample a little bit of the user base. Right now, on on Steam, Linux has a market share of 0.82%. Okay. Now, when you look at VR, VR is already now at 043 so it's it's over half of the Linux market share already. So mm. people people who are saying VR isn't going anywhere are mad because it's halfway to overtaking the entire Linux market share. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely going places and the technology is going to keep on moving forward. It's going to keep getting cheaper. Obviously, it started off and you've got wires going everywhere. Now it's mm-hmm. already going wireless. There's already rumors and pictures. So the... The rumors that seem like they're true that Valve are going to be doing their own VR headset. Wow. Um, so that's going to be quite interesting. But linking into that, apparently there's going to be some sort of like Half-Life VR game that Ooh. comes out with it, apparently. Half-Life 3 confirmed so, from Liam? Well, no, wow. no, no, no. It, Breaking the destination Linux. It's just going to be Half-Life <laughs> VR. What? Yeah, apparently it's some sort of prequel. What Apparently. is the what is the process for getting the Vive working on Linux? And the reason I ask is because I have played with the HTC Vive. I have played with the Oculus Rift. And I remember the first time I played with the Vive, I thought to myself when I put it on, 
this is an entirely different VR experience from anything else I've ever played with. It is so far above and beyond what like the Oculus was doing at the time. And but the reason I never bought one was because it didn't work on Linux. And that was a fundamental deal breaker for me. I know that there are people that have gotten it to work on Linux, but I also, when I looked into it, understood that it, there was a very complicated process and a very particular set of hardware that you had to have. Is that still the case, Liam? What does it take to get the Vive working on Linux? As far as I know, not as much effort as it used to. Because I don't actually own one myself, so I can't really comment on that too much. But from what I've heard from people using it, it's really not that difficult. There's, um, there's a person who actually streams playing games like Beat Saber through Steam Play on Linux using their VR headset. They stream it on Twitch and I watched it and I was like, wow, this is That's amazing. Cool. I couldn't believe they were doing it. It was just, it looks fantastic. So if people are doing that, it, it's obviously, it can't be that difficult, especially if it's good enough to run a Windows game through Steam Play on Linux through a VR headset. It can't be that bad right now. I guess it I must have come along. I'll have to look for uh, for some sort of a guide and see what what it takes to get that set up. Could you imagine Noah goes from no gaming at all to now he's the VR headset? <laughs> if, if I if I could get a if I could get the Vive working, it's a true story. If I could get the Vive to work, and I knew if there's somebody out there in the audience that says no, I I will will be able to get the Vive to work. I will like let's do it. Let's make an episode of game or episode of Destination Linux. I will buy a computer specifically for VR. I'll buy a Vive headset. I just want to know that I'm going to be able to get the thing to work because otherwise for me and given my convictions, it's just going to be a paperweight if I can't get the thing to work on Linux. Right. right. I don't want a $500 paperweight. It makes sense, yeah. but you're also going to be totally addicted to Beat Saber. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Where you slice the. Yeah, exactly. yeah, absolutely. If that works on Linux. Oh my God. Yeah. He's going to wear I, his I, Jedi cloak and everything. I'm, I'm quitting the show. Cause I mean, well, you, I'll, I can be on the show. I'll put the camera on, but all you're going to see is. <laughs> you in the background <laughs> whacking at stuff. I love it. I love well, it. I've just had a quick look over the Steam VR for Linux bit. And apart from making sure you've got the latest, you know, graphics drivers and your uh your UDEV rules set up correctly, it looks like it should be plug and play once you've done that. Okay. So I am or I am I am looking right now to see what it takes to get a Vive here by next week. <laughs> no. So uh, with these sorry, with these headset games, um does it totally negate the need to use your mouse to point? So let's say you were using it in a point-and-shoot game. Would you literally just look at the person because your headset's looking at them, you'd be aimed at them, or do you still yeah. have to aim within there with your mouse sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the point of the headset. You're, you're looking around, and the whole viewpoint is changing. But you, you have controllers in your hands, Zeb, that you would use as, like, triggers for a gun. Different games will use it differently, but... When you move, you would look at them and then you would say, hold the trigger in your hand on the controller and then that would shoot them or, you know, wield the lightsaber that you're swinging. But yeah, Zeb, you've, you've never played. A, you've never played with the Vive. No, not at all. It is going. I'm telling you, it is going to blow your mind. Pixelated games have never looked so good. But when you get a chance, <laughs> you go, you go into a store and put the headset on. And even though it's incredibly pixelated, you will be you'll be blown away. It will change your life. Yeah. Imagine Broush in this vr headset oh my gosh <laughs> oh. just amazing i'm speechless for numerous reasons <laughs> well liam it is always a pleasure to have you on we definitely want you back in the future because you bring so much cool information for gaming which so much of us love your website is absolutely amazing it's a go-to source for me and everyone here 
for gaming news. So gamingonlinux.com, go check it out. They are also on Discord. They have live streams on Twitch. It's just a really cool place where there's a lot of content for you to absorb. So go check it out. All the info is out there on their website. Liam, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. If you're a fan of Telegram Messenger or maybe you've used Viber or maybe you're on uh, WhatsApp or whatever, there's all sorts of different competing Messenger apps. But you know what? A lot of them don't take privacy seriously. And that's where our software spotlight comes in today. And our software spotlight, we mentioned it earlier in the program, it's Jamie Messenger because privacy matters on the internet. Now, Jamie allows you to communicate freely and will always maintain your privacy, whether you send a message, start an audio or video call, share files. It is a GNU open source alternative to Telegram. The application uses a distributed hash table to establish communication. This technology eliminates the centralized register of retention of personal data. Now, Jamie is based on a distributed network technology, allowing it to not use servers that require dependencies that facilitate mass surveillance. So essentially, would we call that decentralized? Decentralized with decentralized, but having servers. So it's kind of centralized, but not really. Jamie stores your secret private keys for messaging only on that machine. So it executes what belongs to you. Therefore, your device is the sole owner of your information. Now, things that are some of the features, audio calls, video, audio, uh, send recording and send video and audio conferencing, video calls to Jamie users, instant messaging, emojis, animated GIFs, a whole lot more. The thing that is, of course, it's available in Android, iOS, Windows, Mac, Linux, the whole nine yards. What is What struck me as interesting, one was that it's open source. The mm-hmm. second thing is that it has their, their kind of decentralized thing. But the third thing, we don't have many video uh, messaging applications on Linux, right? So a couple of things crossed my mind. A, is this something that maybe starts to get into that meeting space? B, is it something we'd ever consider looking at for destination Linux? C, is this going to provide any real competition to Telegram? Because here's the other side of that, right? The other side of that is there is the network effect. I'm on Telegram because everybody I freaking know is on Telegram and every it becomes an, almost a de facto standard in the geek world. When you want to talk to somebody, uh, Ryan and I have exchanged mm-hmm. numerous. Uh, I, I, I've, he said, "Hey, can we get this guest on the show?" I'll say, "Here's his Telegram handle." I'll say, "Hey, I want to talk to so and so. I'd like to have him on my show." He gives me his Telegram handle. I mean, it's become the way that we exchange information. You go to a Linux conference, okay? There's going to be a group uh, on Telegram for that Linux conference, and people chat about it. So uh, that network effect concerns me a little bit because that's what it's really going to take to get this off the ground. I agree 100%. I looked at this and I thought, my gosh, I, you know, the Telegram has become my version of my Facebook, my social network, all of that stuff combined. And the hardest thing is getting people over to these platforms, right? They don't want to leave the platform that they've been using. Now we have all these people on Telegram and we have these cool services that we should all be going, yeah, we want something that's completely open source and as a very privacy focus, but how do I now get all of those hundreds or thousands of users in my group moved over to this now other platform because most of them won't go uh, or may not, you know, like the service or want to utilize it. So it, it is difficult. I think some of these things take time. And for all we know that services like Telegram, et cetera, could, you know, eventually go open source like a lot of software companies have 
they start to be a part of the open source community and then it gets addictive and they start contributing it to it more. So everybody would move over there and then Telegram may become open source in the future. Who knows? But I think the biggest issue that would hold a service like this back is just what you talked about. How do you get the network of people already on one platform moved to another? Well, to be fair, that's the same thing that people say about Telegram when it was first announced. And sure. because there's, you know, people on Viber, or there's people, or there's a ton of people on Facebook and everything. And I promoted um, Telegram for at least six months to people to get them to try it. And people ignored it. And then eventually I kind of gave up doing it. And then a year later, people started picking it up like, hey, have you heard of this? Like, so that kind of thing is a situation where the same thing could happen with Jamie or Jamie, whatever. It would be. If you could get people to use it, if it is a valuable thing and it is better, then promoting it is the only way to get people to do it and to get that network effect to happen. So I think that the argument of the network not being there is 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 fair when it is as right now, but not as in the sense of the future. However, the decentralized part of it does kind of have a problem with being that network possibility. If you have a everything is scattered, then you really can't have that network effect. And a small uh, tidbit about the Telegram thing, they are technically like half open source. So their clients are open source, but their servers are not. Right. So, and they've, they, to be fair, they have promised that they are eventually going to release the code for their servers. But, you know, it's been two years, three years, four years. It hasn't happened yet. Yeah. All right. On to tips and trick of the week. So if you are doing some troubleshooting like I had to do when I got the Radeon 7, some of the things you may need to post on a forum, I'd have to post on a forum, but some of the things you may need to grab to let people know some of the issues that you're having uh, is information on your Linux version and the kernel that you're using. And a way to do that easily is just to type U name TAC A. See, Michael, I can be taught or dash A for those of us in the United States. So that's you name dash A. <laughs> and that will give you your Linux version and your kernel information, which can be useful if you're going to post about bugs or having issues. If you have latest, like I said, if you have a, a Radeon 7 and you're having issues, that's probably one of the questions somebody's going to ask you is what kernel version that you're on currently. And also another thing that may be helpful for you is knowing the latest MESA version uh, that you have on your machine. And to do that, you're going to type in and you can, this will be easier in the show notes. So just go to the show notes, but essentially it's GLX info and then the pipe and then grep and then quotation marks, open GL version where the O and the G and L are capitalized. And that will give you your current version of the mess drivers there. So that is our tip and trick of the week. All right, a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. We love our patrons and Kofi supporters. Michael would call it coffee supporters. Just want to give a special shout out to all of you who support this show and thank you for uh, coming to join us for our patrons and coffee supporters when we do the live series. We really appreciate it. And you can join us too for just a dollar and that's darn near free that's right we're now on coffee so or coffee depending on how you pronounce it if you're 
if you're Michael incorrect or everybody else an incorrect. If you'd like to support the show in a monthly option, we have that available to you. They don't have some of the con- some people have concerns with Patreon. Of course, we want to be friendly to people that still want to have that single account. And so we're going to continue to exist on Patreon. But we do have another option for you. So make sure to check out the link in the show notes on our website. I believe it's just ko-fi slash destination Linux, right? The perks include things mm-hmm. like access to live shows, unedited version of the shows, as well as our most sincere gratitude. So the reality is you get the absolute worst show that we've ever done for <laughs> more money than it would cost you just to get it free off of YouTube. And so who wouldn't want to do that? That's a great well, way of wait, saying oh, it. Did I say wow. that? Out loud? I'm sorry. <laughs> so please get back to us um, and send us your emails. Let us know what you think. Or ask that burning question. Did Ryan really buy Radeon 7? Let us know whether you think it was value for money. Um, you can send your emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. Or you can contact us via our Telegram group, Discord, Google+, Twitter, Mastodon. And who knows, we might even find ourselves on Jammy anytime soon. So um, please keep those comments in. We love to read them, and they do provide some great insight for the show and discussion points. Don't you have a virtual truck to go drive into a wall, Zeb? I am sick of you picking on me this episode. No, I'm teasing. All right. So the, the, this has been a fun episode, but the show, the fun is not stopping here. If you want to find out more, you can go to our own channels. We actually have, uh, we all do, it, do individual channels where we make our own content separately. So, for example, you can find uh, some you know, hardware news, especially the Radeon 7 video that's going to be coming out on Ryan's channel for at w- uh, youtube.com slash dosgeek. You can also find Zeb as potentially maybe driving a virtual truck into a wall (laughs) on his his channel at youtube.com slash Zebedee Boss. You can find my content at tuxdigital.com and uh, where there I'll have uh, content about various different Linux videos as well as uh, this week in Linux podcast. And you can check out Noah's show, the Ask Noah show, uh, where he takes questions from his audience for business questions and Linux and tech questions. Uh, You can also remember to uh, like that smash button and to share the show on social media. Everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the seven nanometer destination. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Whoever typed that in for me at the last second, I love you. <laughs> that was good. Zep? Was that, that was Zeb or Michael? It was Zeb. <laughs> well done, Zeb. That, I just put it right cool. in time. I saw it and I just smiled like, yeah, man. That was good. <laughs> it just seemed to fit perfectly. Oh, with yeah. You, you nailed that.